Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Element. I want to talk about pre-workout strategies. Oftentimes I see adults, self-excluded. Oh yeah. Getting ready to go train. And they basically have had some coffee. They go and right, because I mean, after you sleep a full night, like you wake up dehydrated already. Let's call it hypohydrated. Yes. Right. Probably having any salts, you know, who knows if you're in the sauna, whatever's going on. And then if you're like someone named Kelly Starrett, you've had lots of coffee and very little water. You don't know me. But with one of the things that is miraculous is that I will chug a very dense cup of element before I go. And it's like I just top off my electrolytes. I preload a little bit and then really try to drink some water. But that instead of drinking an entire bottle, I'll make a really dense element and it's salty, but I know that I'm going to go out into that aerobic effort on the bike, going hiking, and I'll be feeling different. And the results are in the watts. I mean, I really just can't point that out. You think you're working as hard as you can. You're not because you're not salty AF. Yeah. And I mean, I will say that I have a proclivity to just drinking coffee and then training. But if I just have a cup of water with some element in it before I train, it really does dramatically change how I feel while I'm training. And so it's been a go-to change for us to give up our coffee-only routine. I know it's true. But really think about preloading some of your training, especially hard days, with some salt and especially something tasty like watermelon salt. And lo and behold, you will shred. We literally drink it every day. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is supported by Vitruvian. The Vitruvian system lives in our garage, and this is important. You can have heavy, heavy loading, all of the equipment you need in a very small package. When we're seeing now a lot of high school kids realizing they need to start strength training. Parents are a little bit overwhelmed. Which barbell do I get? Do I get this trap bar? Do I need a squat rack? All of those things are removed with Vitruvian. Yeah, I mean, we've been pretty lucky because we've owned a commercial gym. And so we've had access. Did you say lucky? Well, we've had access to a lot of free weights and easy equipment. And so it makes sense to us. But I think for a lot of people, building out a whole home gym is overwhelming and really expensive. And one of the amazing things about the Vitruvian is you can get so much work done and actually real heavy loads loads. on a, a single really easy to store device. And, you know, that's pretty miraculous for most people who want to get some work done at home. Yeah. If you live in an apartment, you live in a place where you couldn't even have an outside or access outside, suddenly in your kitchen, you slide this thing underneath your couch, in your living room, in your kitchen, you can have a legit training center. There's a uh, famous kind of Russian lifter who sometimes lifts in his kitchen. (laughs) And it's horrifying to watch him lower heavy snatches down (laughs) because you don't know what's going to happen. They're going to roll This, no problem. The last thing I want to say that's really remarkable about this is that it's really intuitively set up where you can set range limits. So if you are strong in a certain position or you're trying to avoid position, it's like having a rack built in, a fail rack. So if you fall, the Vitruvian loses its power and all of a sudden you're just there. So failing on the Vitruvian is the safest way to fail I've ever seen. To learn more and for more information, go to thereadystate.com slash Vitruvian. We are very excited to welcome Dan Butner to the Ready State podcast today. Dan is an explorer, National Geographic fellow, award-winning journalist and producer, and New York Times bestselling author. 
he discovered the five places in the world dubbed Blue Zones hotspots where people live the longest, healthiest lives. Butner now works in partnerships with municipal governments, large employers, and health insurance companies to implement Blue Zones projects in communities, workplaces, and universities. Blue Zones projects are well-being initiatives that apply lessons from the Blue Zones to entire communities by focusing on changes to the local environment, public policy, and social networks. The program has dramatically improved the health of more than 5 million Americans to date. In his new book, The Blue Zone Secrets for Living Longer, Butner returns to Sardinia, Italy, Ikaria, Greece, Okinawa, Japan, Costa Rica's Nicoya Peninsula, and Loma Linda, California to check in on the superagers living in the Blue Zones and interprets the not-so-secret sauce of purpose, faith, community, downtime, natural movement, and plant-based eating that has powered as many as 10 additional years of healthy living in these regions. And Butner reveals an all-new Blue Zone, the first man-made Blue Zone yet explored. Butner also holds three Guinness World Records in distance cycling. I think this is such an extraordinary conversation. If you haven't heard of Blue Zones, welcome to the team. Like We reference yeah, them a we lot. We are obsessed with Blue Zones. But what I really appreciate is that he has taken the next step it's easy to be a journalist and be like, look at this problem or look at this extraordinary thing. But then to be able to go into municipalities, change people's BMI, save money, re help people restructure and think about their world is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, Dan is doing a lot of amazing work, but the fact that he's able to take his work and expand it on such a large scale in you know communities and governments is just really astounding. And it was really cool to hear about the work he's doing there. I also love that you see sitting down and cooking as a central tenant. Both our daughters, we sit down with them. One of our daughters is a master cook. She makes us dinner all the time. I love that he's talking about very basic materials that people make into extraordinary foods, which means that like we can feed our families with sort of simple seasoning, simple foods. He calls them peasant-based foods. But here it is, once again, the sort of the intersection of so many aspects of our lives that we think are seemingly disparate. Yeah. And I mean, I am a huge fan of Dan and his work, and it was a total honor to have him on this episode of the Ready State Podcast. And so enjoy our conversation with Dan. Dan, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. We are really excited to talk to you today. Well, I'm in a state of readiness. <laughs> <laughs> like so, a sprung leopard ready yeah. to go. So we obviously have a lot to cover related to the Blue Zones and your latest book. But before we do that, I can't help as a lover of adventure myself, at least having you tell our listeners a little bit about your prior life as a Guinness World Record holding three-time three time transcontinental biker. Yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> call it mild insanity or whatever. But when I graduated from college at a time, most people are off doing useful and productive things with their life. I biked from Alaska to Argentina. I biked then around the world, along the 45th parallel. And then uh, I biked the top, the length and width of Africa. And that took about eight years, three separate world records. And um, the, the length and width. Length and width, yes. Holy yeah, including, you know, biking through Russia, which yeah. wouldn't even be possible today. It'd be hard. Uh, Africa, I biked across the Sahara to Nigeria, right through where there was a big coup over the weekend. And then I took a left and cycled through the Congo to East Africa and then down oh. to the southern tip. 
and it's 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 actually kind of a miracle I'm still here to talk about it. And that your uh, bum is still here to talk. About. That's a lot of time in the saddle. I got to find out. First of all, we are huge cycling nerds. We love all things bike racing. Um, what bike did you do that on? Uh, Alaska Argentina was a rally bike. You know, at the time there were no real touring bikes, so we kind of took a touring bike around the world. We got at Can- Cannondale, and then uh, also across Africa we had kind of Cannondales. They're some of the first mountain bikes, actually. One of the things that happens when you're on a bike or walking versus running in a car is you have a chance to look around. You have a chance to absorb the the environment. You you know, it's much more conducive to you have to get off and, and talk to people. Do you think that that initial framework coming out of college, of spending so much time, just made you a little bit more curious about the environment you're in? And that led you to, you know, this sort of lifelong project of trying to understand you know, health and humans, happiness at this kind of system, ecological level? I think I have more than my share of curiosity. And I think curiosity was an engine for both, both projects. I wasn't thinking about health when I, when I did the long bike rides. I was, you know, early 20s, mid 20s, and, and just craved to see the world. It does teach you self-sufficiency. It teaches you um, a certain uh, empathy to the rest of the world. I mean, the hospitality we got in these countries, Latin America and Africa and South Asia was off the charts. So it's very hard to ever be uh, prejudiced or or, uh, feel like somebody else in the world is worthy of less than we are worthy of here in the United States. But uh, yeah, I'm comfortable with it in all cultures. And that was was a gift. And that ability to quickly make friends and, and quickly an empathetically approach a situation was also very useful in doing the Blue Zones work. So that's the perfect segue. And, you know, I've been obsessed with your work in the Blue Zones uh, since your first book came out, which I think was in 2007 timeframe, if I'm not mistaken. But could you define for our listeners or explain to our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, what are the Blue Zones? And why are they important? Well, they're important because they provide a manifest or a, a, a real-life uh, human example of longevity. So, so much of what's popular now in the, in the longevity space or the anti-aging or biohacking, whatever you want to call it, is extrapolating from, from Petri dishes or test tubes or some sort of a genetic model. Very few, if any, have actually been proven out in human populations. And I approached the whole problem from the other end of the spectrum. At National Geographic, and thanks to funding from the National Institutes on Aging, I hired demographers to find the areas where people live statistically longest. And it's a fairly complex uh, equation, but these are people, to just make it simple, these are places in the world where people have most eluded the diseases that foreshorten our lives. So... These are places where people aren't suffering from heart disease, diabetes, cancers of the GI tract, breast, prostate cancer, dementia, any of these diseases that are lopping about 10 years off of American life expectancy, they're not experiencing them or they're not experiencing them anywhere near that this is the rate we are. So I simply said, all right, here are populations who've achieved the outcomes we want. How are they doing What's the common denominators? And I tried to approach the problem as scientifically rigorously as possible. 
And uh, my books and cover stories for National Geographic and the New York Times have all come out of that research. So, you know, one of the things I read as I was preparing for this interview, and I think we talked about this briefly in, in advance, I even love this phrase you used. It's the ecology of health, the idea that the key to success is focusing on the environment versus individual behaviors. And I think that's one of the things we've gotten very wrong in sort of the health fitness wellness community is that we have been solely focused on these individual behaviors and assuming that it's all about you and you change your behaviors and then, you know, that equals health. And that's something we've come to believe is truly a mistake and that, you know, these behaviors really have to start in the household and in the community and be reinforced in those environments. Almost structurally. I wanted to talk about your first Blue Zones project, which I read ran for about 18 months and you raised the life expectancy of the average citizen by three years and shaved about 30% off that city's year-over-year healthcare bill. And I think you said that the reason it was successful is that you changed or you helped to change people's surroundings, their environment. It wasn't about focusing on the individual. So could you just talk a little bit about, you know, that sort of ethos of, you know, the ecology of health and, and what you are doing with the Blue Zones Project in particular? Yes. So just to rewind a little bit, we found that these areas where people live the longest in places like Sardinia, Okinawa, Japan, Nicoya, Peninsula of Costa Rica, Ikaria, Greece, and among the Seventh-day Adventists. So I went looking specifically for what these places were doing. And you sort of look for a diet or an exercise pattern or a supplement they're taking consciously or unconsciously. And it turns out that nowhere where you're finding extreme longevity are people trying to live a long time. In fact, it's the opposite of our, <laughs> you know, we pursue health in this country. We pursue health by diets or finding superfoods or supplements or exercise program, CrossFit, following Instagram influences, whatever it is. People in the blue zones don't do any of this. And they're living 10 to 15 years longer without disease. How do they do it? Well, it took me about six years before, duh, they're not doing anything. They are a product of their environment. They live in places where every time they go to work or a friend's house, it occasions a walk. They all have gardens out back. So they, they unconsciously are weeding or watering or harvesting. Their houses aren't full of mechanical conveniences. They're moving every 20 minutes or so. But not in a structured, you know, calendar in, in your outlook type of way. The cheapest, most accessible, and most delicious foods, as my books, I believe, chronicle, are peasant foods. They're cheap, the lowest shelf in the grocery store type food, like beans and whole grains and nuts and, and tubers. They just know how to make them taste delicious. The uh, option to be lonely isn't there. They haven't imploded into their handheld devices yet. When they go outside, they're bumping into their neighbors. They show up to visit village festivals. They show up to church or temple. And they have vocabulary for purpose. So those are the general ideas, and people kind of yawn at them. But there is way more academic literature showing the power of being socially connected the power of knowing your sense of purpose. Each of those are worth somewhere between seven to eight extra years of life expectancy. If you could put it in a pill, it would be a blockbuster drug. So to get to your question, I'm sorry for the, um, the cul-de-sac here, but instead of trying to change people's behavior, I just took the blue zone cue 
and created a project that would change people's environment. So the healthy choice was the easy choice. And Elbert Lee, Minnesota, that's the first Blue Zone project. They've actually been doing it now for 12 years. We went into the city, and instead of trying to convince 18,000 people living on the prairies of Minnesota to change their diet and how much they moved, we worked with city council to pick uh, policies that favored healthy food over junk food, that favored the pedestrian over the motorist, that favored the non-smoker over the smoker. We worked with almost all the schools, restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, and churches and got them to optimize their designs and their policies to nudge people into moving more, eating better, living their purpose. And then we worked, we got about 25% of the adult population to agree to optimize their homes and their social networks. Yes, we told them what people in the Blue Zone ate and how they lived. But that, we know that's short-lasting. But once they set up their environment, so those micro-decisions, those unconscious micro-decisions are ever so be- much better, over time, we could see in the population data, people got healthier. Their, their weight dropped. We shaved two tons off their waistline in 18 months. And the big aha is they didn't even have to try. When did the people in this experiment start to feel like it was changed because intuitively, logically, all the things you're suggesting, shaping an environment, we call it environmental constraint, where people don't have to make a, a right decision. They just make the decision that's better for the environment, better for the community, better for the you know interactions. It's easy to buy in. It's hard to see when that pendulum starts to change direction or when that teeter-totter starts to tip. What point did people start to say, wow, there's really something to this? Because what you said is 18 months, people started to really lose a lot of weight. That has to be very, very powerful. <laughs> but w- what about the other aspects? It's hard to quantify social loneliness. It's hard to quantify you know, communications or, or feeling like I belong in my community. When do people start to notice sort of the aggregates of those things? Or did it just show up in the, the death data of, and the sickness data of this community? We work with Gallup. They have something called the Wellbeing Index, and they ask people... Uh, questions so that they can determine the BMI of the community, or um, you can actually measure loneliness. People rank their level of loneliness and how much they socially interact. They also self-report their life satisfaction, how many fruits and vegetables they eat, how much physical activity they get. So our Blue Zone projects, we put our fees at risk. Now it's a regular company. It started out as an experiment, but we grew it into a company. And um, we get a report card by Gallup, and they tell us, are people less lonely here? Are people losing weight here? Fort Worth, Texas lost 3% off their BMI, which occasioned about a quarter of a billion dollars in healthcare costs every year. You can't necessarily go up to the person on the street and say, hey, do you feel a lot better? But when you measure populations, as Gallup does, you get a very clear signal. And of course, you can find lots of anecdotal examples of people saying they no, oh, I lost 30 pounds or I feel great. But the um, the tire tires hit the road. I think the most important measurement is BMI at the population level. Basically the number of fewer people the lowering of the obesity rate. And, and then um, how much they're saving in healthcare costs. Because at the end of the day our healthcare system it's all money. They'll tell you something else, it's all money. So if you can show them how to save money They'll pay attention. <laughs> I love yeah. it. We, that has been our experience 
massively working with, you know, big organizations like the Navy, you know, that uh, when we can show people that we can reduce injury risk or pain or musculoskeletal or loss doesn't work, yeah. they pay attention to that. That's, that is really, a, you said a quarter of a billion dollars for Fort Worth? In Fort Worth alone. But yeah, you know, if you, if you lower the BMI of a population of a million by 1%, that occasions about 9,000 fewer heart attacks per year. A heart attack in America costs over $100,000. You don't have to save, you don't have to lower BMI very much before it starts adding up into the hundreds of millions of dollars saved. And that doesn't even get at productivity, absenteeism, the value of living in full health or without pain or disability. That's a perfect segue that I love about your new book is the sort of the case studies that you have going back to these places. You actually focus in on specific individuals and all of them don't look like they're on life support in a hospital. They look <laughs> vital. And I think sometimes the for Juliet and I, we, we kind of shake our heads a little bit when we're having these really very privileged, very upper middle class conversations about biohacking, as you say. <laughs> and there's not a really a conversation about what that last 20 years of your life looks like. And the pictures here of people in their 80s and 90s flexing and diving into the pool and sitting and being the sitting at the head of the table at 102. Those people are living lives and really are functional in their community. And I, I, I almost think it's how do we quantify that? Because that is really this long goal of all of us dreaming of having a life and continuing to just live a life and then hockey stick at the end. You know, that's yeah, versus like the long, slow oh rot theory God. of aging. Yeah. That's the majority of Americans right now. Increasingly, we're going to die in hospitals, not at home or on our way to the hospital. And, and that's because you know, almost 70% of us have suffered from a chronic disease in middle age. And um, those chronic diseases, they come on slowly and insidiously. And we can survive them, but not in full health. And um, in blue zones, as I said, that these people don't have superior genes. They have the same set of genes as the people listening right now on average. They don't have some secret supplement or uh, any other you know, secret. They're simply doing the things that uh, keep them from getting uh, heart disease, diabetes, dementia, and they live a long time. But eventually, you know, our bodies are programmed for obsolescence. Mammals are programmed to live two and a half times the age of procreation. So whether you're an elephant or a mouse, a mouse or a human in between, our bodies are engineered to make it, you know, let's just say procreation begins at 16 for humans, multiply that by two and a half at 40, where our bodies are meant to go to about age 40. Well, sure enough, you know, until about 1900, humans never made it past 40 on average. And then it's you know, it's 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 hockey sticked upwards, largely due to vaccinations and antibiotics. But we're pushing the human machine well past its capacity. At a certain point, it's just going to break down. And right now, for the maximum average life expectancy for humans is about 95. So everybody listening right now, if you do everything right, and I would argue my book, Blue Zone Secrets for Living Longer, will show you how experience of real populations, you can make it to 95, not 100, but on average 95. But after that, the body, there's so much built up of molecular and cellular damage that there, there's a catastrophic event happens 
and uh, the machine doesn't run anymore and we die. But the value proposition is 95 years and Americans are getting about 80 right now. So it's a, it's a big value. So, you know, I thought the data was so stark during the COVID pandemic about how poorly we did as Americans in being able to, you know, survive that pandemic, that maybe that would be sort of a like a system level uh, notice like, OK, we need, you know, at a government, you know, whether it's federal government or city state level, that we really need to rethink a lot of our policies around healthy behaviors. And it doesn't seem that that came to pass in any way, shape or form. In fact, in, in many ways, it seemed like people didn't actually really want to talk about our poor health and poor outcomes related to COVID that somehow that was, you know, like a verboten topic. But hearing about the city you worked with in Minnesota, I know you've worked with a ton of other cities. And then I also read in your book that Singapore has something called the Healthy Living Master Plan. First of all, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what they're doing in Singapore and and how we can all, those of us who are in this universe trying to help people feel better in their bodies and live longer and feel better while they're living longer, you know, how can we duplicate what it is you're doing, you know, in our own communities, in our own cities, in our own states. So I don't think there's enough of you uh-huh. going. Yeah, there, yeah, there may not be enough of you. <laughs> too, many, too many cities in the United States need your help. Yeah, so it seems like you know other countries are starting to get the message. You know, the Singapore Healthy Living Master Plan. You know, the work that you're doing in cities around our country. You know, the Europeans always seem to be a bit ahead of us in thinking about these things. So, how do we solve this problem or duplicate what you're doing on a mass level? How do we get Americans to care on a sort of, you know, macro level? Well, that's a lot to unpack, but um, I will (laughs) say our Blue Zone projects, if you want to know about Blue Zones projects, go to bluezones.com and there's a community. Any community in America can apply. We've worked in 72 cities since we started um, Albert Lee and you know, Naples, Florida, Fort Worth, Texas, Scottsdale, Arizona, Jacksonville, uh, Florida. I mean, big cities. And the thing you have to realize, the cost of doing nothing is enormous. We have a $4.4 trillion healthcare bill right now. That just keeps going up. The number of Americans who are obese or overweight continues to skyrocket. So does type 2 diabetes. And uh, all the money we shovel into the healthcare system, which is all to fix the problem after it happened. It just, we can't keep up with it. The first thing to do is realize that doing nothing is not an option. So that means trying new things at the population level. And I argue, why not just look to populations or cities who've achieved it? Uh, Singapore, in the book, Blue Zone, Secret to Long Life, we announced that Singapore's uh, Blue Zone 2.0. Why? Because... They started out as a very average, kind of unhealthy place in the mid-60s, and they've added almost 25 years to the life expectancy, and they have the highest healthy life expectancy in the world right now. And that's not because they got lucky. That's because Singapore, largely under Lee Kuan Yew, first of all, hired really smart ministers of health and education and um, the economy, and... You know, he's a, sort of a tough guy. I mean, he said, you know, we're we're in charge here and um, we're going to have a, a 30-year plan, not a four-year plan to get elected again, a 30-year plan. And we're going to make some unpopular decisions because we know it's good for our country. And they were able to 
tax cigarettes very high and put these horrible lured pictures of what it looks like to suffer from mouth cancer or lung cancer right on the package. They have the courage of to label food properly, to tell us where there's excess sugar or it's full of processed food, something our lobbyists keep from happening. They, you know, they had traffic congestion. Uh, it was completely gridlocked. Uh, they t- slapped about 100% tax on buying a car, and they charged more than $15 a gallon for gas. But they took all that tax money and they put it into a fantastic public transportation system that's super easy and fast and safe and clean, and it crisscrosses the entire country. So people are walking instead of biking. They recognize the fact that over 50,000 people in a country like America die because of gun death. You know, we in America want our freedom to have guns, but in Singapore, uh, it's not an option for an individual to own a gun. So uh, they're not getting that 50,000 people dying from accidental gunshots or people opening fire in schools and so forth because nobody has a gun. You can't own one. Similarly, they're very hard on drugs. You know, we have about 100,000 Americans die from overdoses of drugs. In Singapore, if you're caught with more than 15 grams of an opiate, uh, you'll be put to death. Um, But only about 15 people die a year of having um, more than 15 grams of opiate, and only 18 people die a year of overdoses. So um, you have to decide, do you want to make health a priority or do you want to make uh, political agendas a priority? In Singapore, they've had the courage to say, no, we're going to put help, make health a priority and safety, and they've achieved it. You, you can see it in the numbers. I was in Singapore right before uh, COVID hit, and even just as you start in the airport, the amount of greenery, the sort of conscious public design that's in there, you really you sort of come in through this portal and start to say, hey, this feels different. I remember being aware of, as you pointed out, around smoking, my friends and my Singapore friends pointed out how expensive it was, but even outside they had corralled the smokers into these very small areas outside, making it very difficult to smoke. And you just couldn't just smoke anywhere outside. If you were in a public place, you had to smoke in a very tiny place outside, otherwise face a very steep fine. So I mean, I appreciate what you're saying. My undergraduate degree was in geography and cultural geography, really understanding environment, person interaction. I became a physio, but I think ultimately the thing I'm most obsessed about is we keep applying these complex solutions to very simple problems that tend to be you know, more easily solved upstream. When you're taking this systems approach, because you keep describing multiple aspects of these different societies, what aspect sort of was the biggest surprise to you? Because let me give you an example. With some of the organizations we work with, those organizations that eat together every day at lunch tend to be very successful. And that was a real surprise for me that it was a competitive advantage to have people to eat lunch together. For an example, what surprised you the most about some of these individual blue zones? Well, riffing off of that, in Okinawa, they have this beautiful practice of the moai, it's spelled M-O-A-I, and it's a committed social circle. And it's often formed at childhood. It's four or five people who get together and they sort of pledge to support each other through life. They meet uh, once or twice a week sometimes. Uh, many of them are organized where you bring some money. Everybody brings money to the meeting. It goes into a pool. And if one of the meeting members, or one of the Moai members falls under hard times, that money's for them. But it becomes a 
you know, a, a social construct that uh, precludes loneliness. Okinawans aren't lonely because, you know, they're born into a place where they have their circle of friends. And here in the United States, something like 25% of people uh, report that they're lonely, which shaves about eight years off their life expectancy. Similarly, Okinawa, no word in their vocabulary for retirement. Instead, ikigai, or sense of purpose, imbues their entire adult life. So they wake up every morning, not in an existential crisis. What am I here for? Well, what should I be doing? No, they that tip of their tongue, they know what their, what their uh, position in society is and what their responsibility is to that society. And, um, you know, similar to your very good observation about eating lunch together, there, there are these subtle things that have evolved over the millennia, which are there for a reason. I think similar you eat with your family, uh, very powerful. We know people who eat with their family tend to eat fewer calories, less junk, more nutrition, and that's a great time to, you know, build a more cohesive family. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. If you're loving on this episode as much as we are, you can thank our friends at Momentous Nutrition. So what we want to talk about today is our love of Momentous Protein Powder and the way in which you have created a new protein recipe that is now your daily go-to. What is it? First of all, let me just say, shout out to all the kids who've been chugging protein shakes since pre-Vietnam. Like I have been drinking. I'm one of those people. I have been drinking. I feel like you're a Johnny come lately. Like you literally just discovered it in the last five years. You don't even have protein shake fatigue. I don't even know what you're talking about. The point is, I take a scoop of chocolate, not two scoops, not three scoops, scoop of chocolate into some yogurt, preferably skier, skier, but some kind of Greek yogurt, some kind of thing. It makes the most delicious pudding. Then I smash some berries in there and I am waiting to get over it. And I'm not over it because it's like, I'm like, oh, look at this pudding dessert ice cream that I'm having. And it's not, hey, let me put this brown water in this cup and shake it up. This will get you to add protein grams to your life. The momentous protein grass-fed wake from cows, from German cows, noted. Also, they add digestive enzymes, which means I never have belly issues. Like sometimes other proteins have made me sick. And that's why I kind of went away from it. So I was like, I can't drink that. And now in this protein berry, like amalgam of awesomeness, my life has changed. So give Kelly's protein yogurt a try and go to livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. Here at the Race Take Podcast, we love to do dope stuff with dope people. And this episode is brought to you by our dope friends at Yeti. So what we wanted to talk to you about today in this episode is the fact that our daughter, Georgia, is headed off to college and her college packing would not be complete without some Yeti products. Fact. Um, True fact. We're sending her with some tumblers and a coffee mug and a couple other awesome things. But one of the things that we were so excited to do is actually customize her Yeti bottles Um, And we put her name and you can put a school logo on the bottle. And not only is that cool and looks awesome. We didn't do school logo. But it increases the chances that this bottle will stay in her life and not get lost as she heads into her college. Apparently, I've asked Yeti not only for the customization, but could I put an air tag in there like an app (laughs) so I could track her secretly. (laughs) She goes around to all the parties. Look, we know our daughter is going to be able to drink coffee and stay hydrated. 
and her name on there, or at least a gigantic G. So if you're, you're at Michigan and you see a really tall blonde walking around with a G on her bottle, say hey. What's say up, hey, Georgia? that's Georgia. Yeah, I mean, we just it it looks cool, and it's just an awesome feature that you can do with any any Yeti bottle in fact, or product. In it's cr- one of our new go tos presents for our friends because it kind of feels very customized and very very like I, I didn't just get you this bespoke Yeti product that's going to change your life, but it has your name on it. If you want to get some customized Yeti stuff as we head into the school year or otherwise, go to the readystate.com slash Yeti. So, you know, on this sort of community piece, which is, has been threaded throughout this conversation and, and I know is so important. In fact, I remember going to a, some kind of like health and fitness conference seven or eight years ago, and there was a graph shown about all the things that are going to help the most with longevity. And of course, being socially connected, like far outweighed diet and exercise and all these other things that, you know, that we put so much attention to. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about, because we have a daughter who is headed off to college in, in actually just shy of three weeks, and it seems like this decidedly American sort of construct where we don't live nearby our close family, that we sort of go off and raise our kids on our own and, you know, often live very far away from our parents and our extended family. And that's something that is not done in the Blue Zones. People seem to, you know, stay very tightly connected to their their immediate family and their communities. You know, I actually talked to my daughter about this and said, hey, you know, it's great that you're going off to college and you're going to go learn new things. But it seems to sort of fly in the face of what humans are supposed to do for you to stay gone forever. You know, So maybe it's just my selfish mom self, you know, hoping she comes back and lives nearby us and raises her kids near us. But it does seem like this very American construct that we we don't value the living. The, we don't value, you know, staying close by and connected to our immediate family. I think that's a very valid observation. And certainly in Blue Zone, it would be a shame, for example, to put your aging parent in a retirement home. Older people are always living with their children. and um, But they're not just recipients of care. They're helping with the garden. Or they're, they're the ones who are know how to blend the wine. Or they keep the, all the, re- the family recipes and are, uh, continue to cook and help take care of the kids. And thereby transmitting their wisdom and their resiliency. And, you know, their value is really harnessed where ours is just sort of let the fitter away on the golf courses of Arizona or Florida. And um, it's really a good idea. And, you know, what some of the obvious policies that would help that is this is another example from Singapore. If your aging parent lives with you, you get a tax break. Even if your aging parent lives within five, 250 meters of your house, you get a tax break because, you know, they know they're the child will be, you know, the the parent will be going to see the grandparent, so to speak, and vice versa. But this idea of mandatory retirement, I think, is a big mistake. I think there should be real incentives to keeping families together under one roof. And we see that in the most successful populations on earth when it comes to health. And you, you don't even have to necessarily say why. You just say it is, and here's the proof. Now let's replicate it. Juliet likes to say... Sometimes that, you know, human beings really do two things together. We we move together, whatever that is, walking or gardening or a sense of purpose, exercise, play, and we eat together. And one of the things that has become really stark for us in the human performance side 
is that we found that a lot of athletes that we were working with, high performers, weren't getting enough fruits and vegetables and fiber. And, and then simultaneously, we saw that when we trickled down, we started to ask those questions about kids. There was not any fruits and vegetables and fiber. And we're seeing crazy colorectal cancers in young kids. We're seeing like the things that are coming up are, are pretty profound. And it turns out that di- you know vitamin dinosaur you know pill that we took as a kid maybe was insufficient. The, I think the Okinawans, you, know, you noted in your book that they always have two vegetables at every meal. We are just fresh back from Norway and Germany, and we were just flooded with the amount of small choices around fruits and vegetables with all these meals. What do you mean flooded with small choices? There was a lot of choices or not many? Yeah, a lot of choices. Like you could eat peppers or cucumbers or fruit or, you know, there just seemed little salads in Norway. I mean, one of our, the places we stayed, there were probably 12 different kinds of small salads to eat during breakfast. And it seems to be that one of the pieces that we're misunderstanding is not, you know, a blueberry or walnut is a superfood, but that these need to be kind of bigger parts of this really not trying to, you know, lick this railing of, uh, lick the rail of what nutrition is, but it's very plant forward in a lot of these places where people are living a long time. Yeah, it's... um you know, the, this, the, the book you have there, Blue Zone Secrets of Long Life, I go through very carefully to show you what people have eaten over time. They did eat meat, but only five times per month. The vast majority of what they eat are whole grains, greens, tubers, nuts, and beans. That's what they've been eating. You know, I work with a lot of, of the entire cities, and if you lead with fresh fruits and vegetables, you scare some people. They think, oh, my God, I can't afford to shop at Whole Foods. I would lead, to your point, you're right. We're not, we do not eat enough fruits and vegetables and, and fiber. I, I wrote a story for National Geographic on uh, uh, diets of longevity around the world. And it became very clear that the most important ingredient was fiber and lots of kinds of fiber. You know, the fiber in, in beans is different than the fiber in grains, et cetera. And Almost every culture, whether you're Asian, Latin, African American, you know, even the U.S., even the U.S. here, beans and a grain, those two together make a whole protein and give you, if you're having a regular serving, to give you about half of the fiber you need for the day. So if you're eating a, you know, beans and rice or beans and corn tortilla or pasta fagiole or an Asian rice dish with, with uh, tofu, you're getting all the protein you need and most of the fiber. And just to start there, why? You can make it culturally delicious, it's easy to make, and everybody can afford it. That gets you 95% of the way there. I'm a big believer, you know, if you start your day, I just happen to have this at arm's length, but I start my day with a Sardinian minestrone. Yeah, savory breakfast, no fat, well, there's olive oil, but there's no sugar. Uh, you know, it's not the eggs and bacon most Americans eat. High in fiber, gives you long-lasting energy, doesn't spike your insulin. I mean, that's the way to start the day, I think. Our daughters really love the savory breakfast. They love the savory breakfast. It's true. So, you know, I have to read this quote from your book. We've covered some of this, but we just had our book come out, Built to Move, and we included exercise in it, but sort of as an after effect, because... We, I think, like you, have come to realize that while exercise is important, especially if it's something that you enjoy doing, it seems like 
you know, the people who are faring the best in terms of longevity aren't actually, you know, strapping on their shoes and going to their CrossFit class, right? They're just moving a lot throughout their Sardinia day. is huge into P90X. I don't yeah. know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I have to read this quote from your latest book. It says, despite the $160 billion per year Americans spend on trying to exercise, only one-fifth of all adults get the minimum recommended amount of vigorous exercise. That means exercise is not working for more than 200 million Americans. Similarly, diets are well-intentioned, but colossally ineffective approach to staying healthy and living longer. They, they fail for almost everyone all the time. And, and so I think this is something that Kelly and I have been on our podcast circuit talking about our book, talking a lot about is that, you know, we are spending a massive amount of money in the health, fitness, wellness community. And, you know, the data is clear that it's not working. And, you know, what we found in our own lives, in our own community is that, we happen to love to exercise. That's where, you know, we were both athletes as kids like you. So, you know, we find a lot of joy in doing that. But what we found is that for the vast majority of people who either don't relate to or don't haven't found something they love from an exercise standpoint, just walking a lot can really be the difference that they need. Just trying to focus on getting a lot of movement. And, you know, speaking of coming back from Europe, we just were in Europe and, you know, all their cities and towns are set up so that it's easy to walk and move. And, you know, again, we seem to have this structural problem in our communities where it's, it's actually in many places not easy to walk and it's not set up to walk and our communities aren't aren't focused on that. But, you know, I don't know, talk to me a little bit about sort of your thoughts about this sort of health, wellness, fitness. Kelly and I like to call it the fitness industrial complex. It seems like we're getting a lot of things wrong, but what, what are the big things <laughs> that you see that we're getting wrong there? Even though exercise is a cause of failure for because of public health failure, it's a it's a huge, it's got a great business model. I mean, people get fatter every year and uh, sicker every year and desperation usually around January 1st. They reach for the thing they hear about the most. And it's yeah, exercise programs are relentlessly marketed to people as the answer. Instagram's full of them. So people give it a try, but it, it's, it, you know, they fail. By January 19th, the vast majority of people with the New Year's resolution have already failed at it. So it's a good business model, just a bad health model. And, um, and to your uh, very good observation about Europe being more walkable and bikeable, and that walking gets you about 90% of that, of the physical activity value of training for a marathon, I would say 90% of American cities are five years away from being walkability paradise. Uh, we've done it in many cities. All it takes is political will and for people to see clearly. People think they want to drive everywhere, but driving to work and back is shown statistically one of the least happy things we do in a day. It detracts from our happiness the most. It erodes the air we breathe. Thousands of our children die every year in traffic accidents, not in walking to school accidents that we engineers physical activity out of our life. Even, you know, they think uh, business people think, well, no, I, I don't want, I don't want uh, sidewalks here and, and fewer parking spaces and slower traffic, I'll lose business. But the reality is the slower an automobile moves past your business, the more likely that automobile is going to stop and shop. And people don't realize that. And, uh, you know, most politicians have this um, inclination to widen streets and increase speed limits. 
and uh, move as many cars through a, uh, a roadway as possible. And all that does is induce more demand. It makes it easier for people to buy that second or third car, and then the problem just gets worse in the next five years. What you really want to do is adopt something called a complete streets policy for cities. You can Google that. If you want to know what your community can do, Google complete streets and lobby your city council to adopt it. And all complete streets says is, well, the next time my street gets redone, which it gets redone once every seven years on average, then it has to be assessed for a sidewalk and a bike lane and some trees. And that's how you make a city walkable or bikeable. And by the way, it's very easy to see the correlation. The higher the walk score, the lower the BMI of the city. And most of the time, the most walkable cities have the highest tax base and they're the most livable. And I'll point to Santa Barbara, California, Boulder, Colorado, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, these are all places that are very walkable and uh, people are fit and healthy. New York City, half the rate of uh, half the BMI is the rest of the country. It's walkable. We were just uh, driving to the Munich airport and it's unlimited on the freeway. And then as soon as you hit the outskirts, Julia's like, why are you going so slow? And I was like, the speed limit is 30 miles an hour. Yeah. And also, you know, we have some friends who live in Munich and you can't drive into an Munich. diesel. You can't, yeah, like, there's a ban now. There's like certain cars you can't even drive into the city anymore because they're trying to. Promote. One of the things that you keep talking, there are these sort of key principles and then there are all these follow along ancillary benefits. And one of them is something that we've been talking about with our friends at Outside Magazine about the lack of actual sun exposure and environmental exposure. We're seeing in some of the research that children are only spending a maximum of 40 minutes outdoors every day. You are sort of an advocate for sensible sun exposure. How important is just being outside? Well, all the blue zones, they're all at about the 20th parallel, which is about California or Los Angeles. And they all have gardens, often two or three growing seasons. And they're not slathering on sunscreen. They're getting some sun exposure every day. That We know their vitamin D levels are very high, relatively speaking. and um, you know, vitamin D levels combined with, you know, calcium usually in their water supply makes for stronger bones. Yeah, I, I think Americans, now it gets complex, you know, people from Scandinavia, they're, they're more susceptible to skin cancers and sunburns and so forth than people who live at the 20th parallel. So it's hard to make a blanket recommendation. But I will tell you that 20 minutes of summer sunshine on your arms and your legs will give you more vitamin D than a gallon of milk. So I'd much rather see you uh, tanning in your shorts and short sleeve shirts than, than drinking a gallon of milk. You're almost like we're a vitamin D factory. It's that important. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Pro-hormone. Okay. So Dan, I just, I want to take a moment to say your book is amazing. It's beautifully done. There is a ton of actionable information for anybody who wants to pick it up and read it. And, you know, this may be way too large of a question to wrap this up, but if there are are a couple of things that anyone listening to this today can start with or talk to their community about what would be some, you know, and again, I know everything's important, but what would be sort of a few key takeaways that you would leave our listeners with? At that with community level, not that, the you know, individual level. Yeah. Where can, where can people start? Well, I mean, not to plug a Blue Zone Secrets of Long Life, but there's a chapter in there about what it takes. And most people are misguided as to what it takes. But at the community level, you have to think 
not silver bullet, but silver buckshot. Where are all the places where you can reshape the places we live in and the policies to nudge people into healthier behaviors? And you want to think about what's feasible for your town and what would be effectable in your town. And um, I think that you'll get your biggest bang in the buck for policy change when we're trying to change anything else. And then I think at the at the individual level, let's think about your immediate community, the four or five people who you spend most of the time with. We know that your three best friends are obese and unhealthy is 150% better chance that you'll be overweight. So curating those few friends around you so that their idea of recreation is playing pickleball or walking or gardening, or they care about you on a bad day. That's really important. They're not just, you know, gossip friends. And it's not a bad idea to have a vegan or vegetarian in your immediate social network because they're going to show you how to eat plant-based and make it delicious. Those are lasting influences that you should put to work. Well, again, the book is The Blue Zones, Secrets for Living Longer. It's available wherever you buy your books, Amazon and all the other spots, I assume. And You said bluezones.com for all links and information? Well, danbutner.com, but if you, if you specifically for uh, cities, it's bluezone.com. But I have a free newsletter at danbutner.com. And if anybody has questions, my Instagram, at danbutner, I answer all questions. I'll answer them personally. So if you have follow-up questions, I'm happy to engage with you. I love this. You're honestly, we work with a lot of people who are trying to take a real and nuanced and important approach you swing, but you're the first person that we've talked to who's been working at this mm-hmm. sort of yeah, policy state level, level, policy level. And I just want to just hats yeah. off. It's so important. And uh, we'll see how far you can get another 10 years. We'll, we'll come back around and understand. In the meantime, this is an incredible, beautiful resource. I'm so thrilled that you, uh, you put this out into our community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dan. It's a pleasure. I'm now in the ready state. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it.